Let us come to God in prayer. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, be still in your presence, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I am slowly learning that parenthood is a bit of a funny thing. My daughter Hope has a favorite TV program and it's Peter Rabbit and there's only so much of that that any sane adult can take. And so this week I thought I would introduce her to a TV program on Amazon Prime that's a Bible TV program. So thankfully now she's actually asking for that alongside Peter Rabbit. So there's a bit of variety now. Uh, but I guess there was that part of me that thought, oh, the minister, I'll get her to watch a Bible TV program. She'll maybe learn something about God and a bit educational. And uh, so at the end of the program, I think I've watched about four with her now, um, I ask, so what did we learn about God? And um, I think I forget, she's a th three and a half year old. And um, so she kind of misses out on things. Hasn't quite achieved what I thought it would. <laughs> And uh, so she focuses on some side issue or some little detail that really has nothing to do with the lesson. Um, it's a funny thing, parenthood. And that experience of hope this past week has reminded me uh, that when we're young, we easily miss the deeper things. It's as we mature, we begin to understand things on that deeper level, whether it be a TV program or a story or, or even what is being taught about God in church. It's with maturity that we begin to have the ability to see beyond the surface of things and see past the distracting things. So what does that look like in the spiritual life? What does it mean to be spiritually mature? There could be several answers. I won't ask you to share with your neighbor today, but maybe over coffee. There's an idea. But in relation to our passage today in James chapter 5, I think John chapter 5 has something for us to be mindful of in relation to spiritual maturity. And there we read, Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. It's a bit of a startling, slightly bewildering line from Jesus, because, well, he is God. So what does he mean here? And again, with that question, you could probably have a number of answers. And, and one such is this, that Jesus, that the Father defined reality for Jesus. The Father's works, the Father's purposes, the Father's very existence defined and guided Jesus' life and ministry. We referenced it earlier, actually, in one of our songs. Uh, it was the love of the Father who said, This is my Son whom I love, with Him I am well pleased. That was the love that saw Jesus through the wilderness temptations. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was the purpose of the Father that allowed Jesus to say, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Take it. Yet not my will, but yours be done. The Father defined reality for Jesus. Jesus lived in such close relationship with the Father that he could say, as we've seen, the Son only does what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Now let's remember, as we've said today already, Jesus is our example. 
He is our teacher, our Lord. So He is the one we model ourselves upon. We're seeking to become more like Jesus. So if Jesus allowed His life to be defined by the Father, if it is the Father who defined reality for Jesus, then that should be the case for us as well. This means that spiritual maturity is equal to the degree that we allow Father God to define our lives, defining how we see the world, defining how we respond to issues, defining the choices we make. Spiritual maturity is the degree to which God defines our lives, our reality. And it's an idea of spiritual maturity that is there underpinning the letter of James, for example. He began saying that he, James, is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. For James, his whole life is wrapped up with God and Jesus. It is God who defines his identity and what James is going to give his life to. Then later in the letter, he'll say to his congregations, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. They are to understand who they are in Christ and live that out. Again, James sees spiritual maturity as a degree to which God defines our lives, defining our choices, our priorities, the things we give our time to, defining how we understand ourselves and understand the world. Again and again, James has to keep taking them back to this core understanding because it's really easy to make God distant and abstract. It's all too easy to forget God, to forget God as easily as we forget what's in the air, air, or what do we breathe? Air. We forget that. We just do it. But without air, we have no life. And it's easy to forget that, and it's just as easy to forget God, to forget His priorities, to forget His ways. And when we do that, we end up focusing on the wrong things, or we see the wrong things. It's like hope. Because of her immaturity, just because she's only three and a half, she focuses on the things which get her attention rather than what the program is trying to tell her about God. Likewise, spiritual maturity is the degree to which God defines our reality so that we are aware of Him and partner with Him, focusing on what truly matters. And one way you could gauge this is to ask, do I really believe this book? Do I really believe this stuff about Jesus? And am I confident in that? Am I confident in the Christian faith? And if you're not, then one idea I have for you is to come along this Saturday to the Breathing In event that we're running in the church. Um, it's dubbed as being for anyone who works with or has a young person, whether grandparent, aunt, Sunday school leader, youth leader, BB, GB officer, but it's actually open to anyone. Anyone is welcome to come. Because part of it is going to be looking at how can we be confident in our faith. And so if you need a, maybe a few ideas on that, come along. 
Sign up today. You can do it at the front or back door. That'll help with the catering. But come along and maybe receive something to help you grow in confidence about your faith. But coming back to James, he has been taking this principle throughout his letter and trying to apply it to the issues of his time. A principle modeled by Jesus, taught by the Scriptures, that part of spiritual maturity is the degree to which God defines our lives. This maturity is not dependent on age. It's not dependent on how long you've been a church member or even how long you've been a Christian. And to finish off his letter, he is going to give four examples of how this could be worked out. He's going to touch on suffering, on honoring God, on prayer, and on sin. And whilst each could do with a sermon, I'm going to try and be brief. So first off, patience and suffering. And James exhorts us to this, referencing the prophets and Job as examples. He drew on these personal, personal, personal difficult stories because they all showed patience and perseverance because God defined their reality. The prophets, we, we know the stories of the prophets, that they were called by God, and quite often they were given a really difficult message, a message that people did not want to hear, and so often there was opposition, there was conflict, there was a tough time for them. But they persevered in their task because God defined their reality. The story of Job is, is a bit of a different story. It's about personal suffering, about suffering when we don't know why, and not because of our choices or the task God has called us to. What we see in the account of Job is a man whose life is defined by the reality of God, and when tragedy strikes, his picture of God is, is shaken. He faces questions he never asked before. And on the surface, it can almost look like Job's faith withers and dies, but in actual fact, his complaint to God was a complaint born out of faith. God defined his reality, and to that very God, he called out. Job never gets the answers he wishes for, but he reaches a place where he can hold on to faith. God is still defining his reality at the end of Job's story. And James raises this issue of suffering because he is well aware that life, including for the Christian, is tough. And we will experience suffering. And in such a way that we may feel tempted to call into question the goodness of God. James is asking, even in the midst of suffering, will we allow God to define reality? Will we hold on to Him and what the Scriptures teach of Him? Or will we allow the difficult times to drive a wedge between us and God? Will we allow the whispers of the enemy to sow lies in our hearts and minds such that we push God to the periphery of our lives? James wants us to be mature, such that God defines reality even in the midst of suffering. And then in verse 12, he does what James does all the time. He seems to change tactic quite abruptly, but as we've seen, speech is very important 
to James, because our speech reveals what is in our heart, including about the reality of God. James here in verse 12 may be referencing uh, vows and uh, promises that were rash or unrealistic, with no expectation of ever being fulfilled, and so would be easily broken. And so to make an oath and involve God in that was to involve God in falsehood. And as such, it would discredit God's name rather than honor Him. And as the Old Testament teaches us, and the name of someone is closely associated, symbolic of their person. Now, I suspect few of us are making any vows, um, and particularly probably not involving God's name or heaven. I don't know when the last time you did that was. I have, don't think I ever have. So, what relevance is this verse for us today? Well, how about that underlying principle that if God is defining our reality, then we should seek to honor the person and name of God in all we do. And the application of that is as broad as the Bible, to be honest. There's just so much we could talk about. But let's stick with speech. Are any of us ever using God's name in vain? Does it accidentally slip off the tongue when we say, OMG? Or let's remember the Scriptures um, forbid any swearing or coarse language, as such words heard from our tongues. Because if God is truly defining our reality and we take on board what the Scriptures say, then it's not honoring the person of God when we take His name in vain, even accidentally, or when we swear. We are choosing in those times to use language that dishonors Him because He said not to do so. Or we could take examples beyond speech. In our culture, it's acceptable to be drunk, to drink too much. Do we get drunk? Because Scripture says not to. Or let's take reading the Bible or prayer. Are we dishonoring God by not honoring Him enough to have time reading the Bible and in prayer Monday to Saturday? If God defines our reality, it is seen in how we honor the person of God, both in speech and in action. The third and trickiest section, really, of this is around prayer, and prayer in all circumstances. I wonder if any of our elders began to get a little bit twitchy uh, as we read through that, those verses, because according to James, you've got a particular role to do. He's not just meaning the minister or the pastoral assistant at this point in the passage. And we'll come to that in a moment as we work through this bit by bit. Because verse 13 is addressed to us all, to every one of us. Oh, we're all called to be a people of prayer, to pray in all the circumstances of life, the bad times, but also the good. Because if God defines our reality, then when times are hard, we turn to Him. And when we are thankful for something, we are quick to give Him the honor. Because as James said in chapter 1, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. 
In my preparation this week, I came across quite a striking line from one commentator. He said, we should view prayer as a revolutionary tactic, not a passive resignation to a situation. In prayer, we enlist the aid and ear of the Lord of hosts, what we might say the Lord Almighty, if we recall James 5 verse 4. I wonder what your view of prayer is. Is it like that? Or do you simply see it as talking to the four walls? Or is it only a moment of quiet inner reflection? Because James, along with the rest of Scripture, calls us to understand God as revealed in His Word, and His Word reveals Him as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies, the Lord Almighty. To engage in prayer is not passive resignation, but approaching the throne of Almighty God. So are we allowing the reality of God to define our lives such that we pray? Are we a praying people? I wonder how you would gauge that. But if you would like to grow in your prayer life, I've got lots of ideas for you. Why don't you come along to our Thursday evening or Sunday morning prayer times? Come and and learn from others as you gather with them in prayer. Or come to the evening service where we have a focus on prayer every month. Or join a fellowship group where you can pray for one another and hopefully pray for the life of the church as well. Or elders and deacons, come along to the prayer times before our monthly meetings. Because we should all be praying in all circumstances. Then James raises the question of praying for those who are ill. And he says, such persons should call the elders and they will come to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Anointing with oil is symbolic in the Old Testament of the Lord's presence being with someone, of being set apart for God's special attention and care. And again, that's probably what is being communicated here. But the question arises, should we always pray with anointing? I don't think so. Because the overall teaching in the New Testament does not consistently pair healing prayer with anointing. And so I don't think this one verse is mandating oil to accompany all prayers for the sick. A number of commentators highlight that these words, the Lord will raise them up in verse 15, um, along with other bits of the passage, could signify people that are lying down, restricted to bed because they are so ill, maybe with a chronic or life-threatening illness. And that matches reality, does it not? Because a number of us here do have stories of God healing where no oil was involved at all. Just last year, after the, one of the morning services, one of our church members, I was chatting away, and they shared that they had a sore shoulder. And so I offered to pray with her. So I laid a hand on, on her shoulder and prayed quite simply and succinctly. And at the time, I wasn't aware that anything had happened Because I forgot to ask what I usually do ask straight away, which is, has there been any change? And I forgot to do that. So it wasn't until some months later, um, one of the evenings of the Alpha course, uh, that they shared with me their story. 
And I probably my jaw hit the ground because it would have been <laughs> lovely to know at the time. Um, but it just so was so encouraging because they were sharing that as I placed a hand and prayed, there was more than just warmth of my hand upon her shoulder. That a warmth worked through her shoulder and that her shoulder became better. I don't know what you make of that. Now, I can also share the other end of the spectrum because just in the last month or so I have prayed for someone else and their shoulder and nothing seemed to happen on that occasion. And I did remember to ask the question, has anything changed? But too often, too often, we only define our prayer life by the negative. And somehow we need to find maybe a balance or create some space within our prayers and our life and our thinking so that we maybe allow that possibility to happen rather than thinking God will never heal or God always has to heal and try and chart something in the middle. Because complete healing never fully occurs. Our bodies will fail us any healing is only temporary and it will only be in the new heaven and new earth that we will have a fully perfect body. But still, God says in his word, he is the God who heals. And the all healing, whether the natural healing process of our body or the supernatural healing of prayer or medical healing, because God gifted people to come up with those medical solutions. Whether physical, psychological, or spiritual, it's all of his hand. He is the God who says he heals. And I'm not saying that we implement this straight away. I think healing prayer is something we need to grow into and, and we grow into over time. But maybe we should try and be more intentional about it rather than putting it off or giving excuses. And one idea on this front might be for you to come along to the Alpha course when we run it again after the summer. Uh, because one of the weeks is on healing and it's one of the most encouraging weeks in the course. But equally, as you can tell, I'm willing to pray for healing. I'm also willing to pray with anointing of oil. So all you have to do is ask. Often we might not think we can pray such a prayer, probably because we don't feel up to the task. And for a long time, I never thought of praying for healing and probably would have not felt up to the task either. But as the passage reminds us, it is in the name of the Lord that healing comes. It is not upon our own merit. It is not by the eloquence of our words which achieve the outcome we hope for. And as such, James reminds us that it's the prayer of a righteous person that is powerful and effective. And he goes on to speak of Elijah, who James says was a human being even as we are. Elijah was that Old Testament prophet who could rise to the heights of faith and then fall into the depths of despair. And he could be brave and resolute sometimes and then fly for his life at the whiff of danger. He was an ordinary person. But what set him apart for James is that Elijah was right with God. 
Elijah was in right relationship with God. He was a righteous person because of his faith. For us, we come into a right relationship with God by putting our faith in Jesus. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. It is by Jesus we are made righteous. And so, if you have done that, if you are in right standing with God, then James says your prayer is powerful and effective because your prayer is coming before the throne of God in the name of Jesus. Because you are in Jesus, Jesus is in you, and through Jesus you stand before Almighty God in right standing with Him. So, let's not make excuses that we can't pray or that our prayers aren't good enough it doesn't depend on you. Instead, let us allow the reality of what God has done in Jesus to define our lives. Because if we do, then we will be a praying people, praying in all the circumstances of life, both the bad and the good. The final example from James is around the peril of sin. And he mentions it first off in relation to prayer and healing. And he's not here suggesting that all illness is related to sin because his brother and Lord Jesus Christ debunked that theory himself. So he's not saying that. He's instead simply saying that assurance can be given of forgiveness for any known sin when we confess it. And then in verse 16, that encouragement to own up to our faults by practicing vulnerability with one another. By engaging in vulnerability through confession and prayer, James again seeks to help us live in the reality of God. I wonder, do you have a prayer partner? Do you? Beyond your husband or wife or whoever you live with at home, do you have a prayer partner? I have uh, someone that I meet up with once a month and we'll meet up for a coffee and then we'll talk about how's life and how is your wife and how's your children and X, Y, and Z, but then we'll get on to the hard questions. How's your walk with God? How is your purity? And we know we're going to ask each other those questions. There's no time we don't ask it. It is on the agenda every time. And I know I can also text him if I'm struggling with something. And often just reaching out to him and being vulnerable is enough to break the power over temptation or struggle or doubt or whatever and help me live in the reality that God is there, that God is my Lord and I will honor him with my choices. So who is your prayer partner? Then James points out at the final two verses, the peril of sin in relation to someone who's wandering away from the truth. And for, tr for James, truth is more than just right ideas, right beliefs. It also includes right practice because as he's shown and again and again, truth, the truth of the faith should impact our living. So to wander here in verse 19 could be both wrong belief and wrong practice. And for such individuals, James exhorts us to get alongside them to enter that place of vulnerability and seek to draw them away from the peril of sin. Friends, I think the letter of James may have brought a timely message for us over these past weeks. 
Because along the way, his writing has given us principles, ideas, concrete actions to take on board so that both individually and corporately, we might have a faith which is more than mere words. Key to that is the degree to which we model ourselves on Jesus, particularly the degree to which we live in the reality of God and perceive the deeper things of God. And that will be seen in the type of wisdom as we looked at in chapter 3. It will be seen in how we treat one another and speak to one another, chapters 2 and 4. It was seen in both our actions and in our prayers. And my prayer is that this timely word from God might help us all to mature in faith and in character. To God be the glory now and forever. Amen.